Welcome to the Goodness Podcast, the Middle East first platform dedicated to tackling women's health in a real and honest way. I'm your host, Noor Tahini. My guest on the podcast today is Alia Morrow, an Egyptian-born, London-raised freelance journalist and the author of the best-selling non-fiction book, The Greater Freedom, Life as a Middle Eastern Woman Outside the Stereotypes. Alia is also the host of a new podcast, Talk of Shame, in which she speaks with guests from across the MENA region and its diaspora in an effort to dig deeper into concepts of aib, or shame in Arabic, and figure out how we can free ourselves from it. Before we dive in, I'm going to let you in on one of my favorite spots in Dubai, One Life Kitchen and Cafe. The menu is fresh, nutritious, and affordable, and the coffee is amazing too. It's roasted on site. Next time you're in Dubai Design District looking for a place to work, meet with friends, or just be alone with a good book, check out One Life. Hi, Alia. Hey. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good, thanks. I just got back from the gym. Gym's just reopened, feeling really pumped and excited about life. You're in London, right? I'm in London. How how nice. Yeah, I can see it's like opening up, things are going back to normal. Yeah, it's really nice. You're, you're on your way to Dubai levels of normalcy. So that's well, good. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Everyone has a lot to say about Dubai and their levels of normalcy. Yeah. Well, so let me start by congratulating you on the launch of your new podcast. Thank you. It's in collaboration with Womina, correct? Yes, exactly. So it's um, I've been working with Womina on it and it's just been so fun to do. It's called Talk of Shame. Mm-hmm. So it's all about how shame impacts our lives, especially as Middle Eastern women, although I'm sure that, you know, everyone will be able to relate because there's so much in common that we have, I think, as women, regardless of where we come from. So, yeah, it's all about shame, basically, and how you know, how it impacts our lives. And we take, you know, many different approaches. So there's one episode on like, is shame necessary? Because I think there's, you know, my grandfather in particular, and a lot of his generation have this idea that actually we need shame in order mm. to be good people. Mm. And that if we're not shamed, then we're like, that's the only thing that controls us. That's so interesting. Mm. That's so interesting. I never thought of that. And I mean, I, I can imagine an argument for the fear, uh, like sh- shame kind of keeps you in check when it comes to certain things. Yeah, well, it's very much a form of control, I think. Absolutely. And I think it keeps you in check. You have to ask, like, what what sort of things is it keeping you in check against? Like, who's put these rules in place? And what is what is this ideal that you're kind of working towards when you're being kept in check by Abe and questioning exactly. where that comes from? Exactly, exactly. And so much of it is, you know, societal controls and so much of it is aimed, I think, especially at women and to do with our sexualities and to do with our bodies and all the rest of it. So it's been, you know, I've definitely felt the impacts of shame on so many aspects of my life. So it's been really quite therapeutic, actually, to get to to speak to so many different people and just really kind of dig deep into it. I'm finding it quite freeing for myself as well, actually. It's a 10 episode series. It's a 10 yes. episode season, sorry. How have you broken it up or themed it uh, in 10 parts? So the first episode is like introduction to shame. And then we've got, you know, raised through shame. So we're speaking to Noor Imam, who has mm. a you know, mother being, and she speaks a lot about sex and, and sex education. So, and then we've got 
episode three. So the impacts of shame on our lives and how that plays out as we get older. Do we need shame to be good people? We've got, you know, I coined in my book this term, the invisible jury, which is essentially the opinion, the people that we're meant to think about when we're told what will people think? So we've got an episode sort of digging in a bit into that. And, you know, why do our communities care so much what people will think? We've got an episode on generational shame, how that's kind of passed down and the impacts Mm -hmm. of that. The final episode is like how to free ourselves from shame. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a journey, I hope. And and it's so interesting. Yeah. Like I hope people will listen to each episode, like each one kind of leads into the next. What's the most interesting thing that you've discovered when recording this podcast about shame? I think, you know, so consciously, I think Mm. I've definitely felt the impact of shame on loads of things, in particular, you know, things like sex or that kind of stuff. That's what made me want to write my book, The Greater Freedom, which came out a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So consciously, I, I kind of knew that. But I think what's been really interesting is the fact that shame inherently impact our sense of of worthiness or our inherent sense of worth and Mm. the way that that then has an impact just on how we show up in the world on our sense of you know self-confidence our ability to trust our own instincts because Mm. you know going back to what we were talking about of do we need shame in order to be good people? What that teaches us essentially is that our moral compass has to come from outside ourselves, Mm. that we can't be trusted to make our own decisions and that they will be good decisions. So I think that's been really interesting. The fact that shame in one aspect of our lives can actually impact everything about us and and the way that we show up in the Mm. world. Absolutely. And I think it also impacts the way and uh, uh, that you form connections with others and the quality of those connections as well. Yeah. Uh, because if you're always, if there's always this like looming aib, I feel it, it stops you from being authentically who you are and therefore building authentic connections and relationships with others. A hundred percent. And I've definitely found, you know, as I've become more, able to accept the different aspects of myself and you know I try really hard to kind of share on social media vulnerably and you know in my work I I really try and just be honest and and vulnerable and not have this I I shouldn't be talking about this stuff and you know in the years Mm -hmm. since I've started to do that that's when I've really I think forged the strongest connections with my friends even with my even with my family yeah a lot of the work that I've been doing I think And a lot of the shame, I think, comes from our mothers a lot of the time. And it's been amazing, amazing, amazing to see how much closer me and my mom are now, now that I'm having these conversations, because it's giving her the space to have them within herself, Mm. which I don't think she had previously done. It's interesting that you say that, because my journey when it came to sort of unpacking why I carry so much shame around so many things started with my body, my weight, my eating disorder. Mm. And when I started to get treatment for that, like I went through like a proper treatment program and I started to talk about it openly to friends and family and say, I'm going through this program. This is what I'm going through. I even wrote about it. I posted it on social media at the time, etc. That opens such an interesting line of conversation yeah. with obviously with friends, but also with my mom. 
you know, and it allowed me to talk to her about what I was learning and how I was changing the way that I perceived body, weight, food, etc. And I could tell that, and she was like, could tell she was interested and she was engaging and it was helping shift her perception of mm -hmm. these things that she's held for so long as well. That's the thing. And I think it's, it's, it's when we, when we work to free ourselves or when we work to be honest with ourselves, it gives everyone else the opportunity to do that mm. as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of pushback against this concept of Aib right now that you're seeing in our generation. Mm. So there's a few platforms that are doing great work around this, a few uh, individuals, etc. And I was wondering, do you feel like this is specific to our generation? Have you have you come across anything and when you've been talking to people or researching this? Or do you feel like, ev like previous generations as well have had their own sort of revolt against against what their parents considered to be Aib? Well, I definitely think that we're all standing on each other's shoulders. Nothing happens in isolation. You know, we're building on the things that have happened before us and mm. the Gen Z are building on the things that we've been working on. So I definitely think that that's, you know, it, it, all, it all helps each other. Mm. But I do think that because we're now so much more connected than we've ever been, even just in terms of social media or, you know, being able to, like, I wrote a book that came out worldwide and people all over the world have been able to read it. You know, there's just such a much easier exchange of information now. Yeah. And I know for me, that's felt really empowering. And it's kind of helped me to feel more able to speak my truth when I see all these other people speaking their truths. Mm. And I think it will just continue to snowball from there because again so much of what we're made to feel we're, we're made to feel like these things are dirty laundry that we shouldn't we should you know keep it to ourselves we shouldn't speak openly about it and i think our you know the old generation my parents generation still very much carry that burden whereas i think our generation are probably the first ones to be like you know what like i don't know if i can swear but f this you can like, you can <laughs> this you know we're like we're just not gonna continue to just because something's always been a certain way it doesn't mean that that's the best way for yeah. it to be or that yeah. there's no way for that to change and I think we're, we've just had enough I've had enough for sure yeah I think it's 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 this whole idea of dirty laundry that you don't air your problems out is so it, it really it causes you to suffer in silence mm -hmm. and I think that the ability to share suffering with others in a way is one of the beautiful things about our experience. Like you don't yeah. have to, you're not going through this alone. You don't have to suffer through this alone. It is not the end of the world kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And if you just keep it to yourself, that's very much what it feels like. Yeah. I think shame, shame breeds shame as well. So the more we keep it in the kind of worse mm. it feels and then it just festers inside us. And then it hasn't, you know, it impacts who we think we are. Like, am I even a good person? You know? Yeah. And then and then it's all downhill from there, I think. So if I had to ask you, based on your research and your understanding of shame, if I had to ask you to like unpack it and tell me where you think it originated from. The patriarchy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hands so down, straight up. Easy answer. Easy, easy response. Yeah. And it's yeah. actually really interesting there. I was reading this book called Sex at Dawn, which is just so brilliant. And it speaks a lot about how during the agricultural revolution, 
a lot of the ideas kind of shifted where it's land started to be really important and inheritance then became really important. So that was when women started to really be shamed for our sexualities, for example, because it was sort of like, I need to, as a man, make sure that it's my son who inherits my land mm. and not someone else's son. So a lot of it comes down to control and the patriarchy, 100%. It's a, it's basically a tool, the way I see it, it's like a tool used to uphold a certain system that's been established. Yeah. And who does that, who does that system benefit? Not us. Yeah, no. Yes. The white man, as, as yeah. they say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. And what have you, well, actually, I'll, I'll ask you about your personal experience. What are the most effective ways you found of ridding yourself of shame? Speaking openly, honestly, has been really helpful and just seeing. So so for me, my journey into all of this, let's say, was, again, like I mentioned, sex for me was always the thing that I was made to feel most shamed about. And I think mm -hmm. that's just really normal for us as, as women, but as Arab women, especially, that's like a really big no-no. You know, you're not meant to be sexual and you're not meant to have sex. And when my long-term boyfriend and I broke up when I was like 26 that was when it started to really sort of bother me because I was I was fine to have sex with my boyfriend like that was no big deal but then when we broke up I was like shit so what do I do now and that mm -hmm. started to you know it started to really upset me because I was like my values are not I'm not able to live up to my own values because I have the shame and I have this voice in my head that's calling me nasty names even though that's not something that I think is wrong. So yeah. I'd, I'd be with a guy or whatever, and I'd want to, you know, kiss him or what, and I would have panic attacks. I would literally have panic attacks. And I was like, so pissed off because I was, it was just not who I am. It, it, you know, if I thought that it was wrong and then I didn't want to do it because I think it's wrong, then that's something else. But if I don't think it's wrong, but there's a voice in my head that doesn't belong to me, that's telling me that it's wrong. That's not cool with me. So I, so that was when I started to really sort of feel this kind of pull of what I thought at the time was a pull of cultures, but I think I'm increasingly realizing is actually just shame that, you know, that is a bit of a pull of cultures, but I think slut shaming and, you know, there's double standards everywhere when it comes to this stuff. It's by no means just a Middle Eastern thing. So I started to write this book called The Greater Freedom. Yes. I wanted to ask you about your book. And that really, for me, I think, is when I started to unpick these things for myself. And, you know, there's a long winded way of answering your question. But <laughs> the more I kind of started to, to dig into all of this stuff and the more I the more I interviewed other women, because the book is part part social commentary, part memoir. So the more I sort of researched and the more I read and the more I started to understand that these are societal conditioning things basically like it's all societal conditioning the more I found it a bit easier to figure out what my hmm. own values were and what my own moral compass was outside of the societal conditioning and that was where uh, it's still a journey I'm by no means you know done there. with this hmm. but but this is when I started to kind of be able to see it and 
from there, I think, is where you start to figure out what your own values are and you're able to rid the shame from others, I think. Hmm. Why did you call it the greater freedom? The name was interesting, actually, and it's interesting how books get their titles because it had a lot of titles before that. And once I signed the publishing deal, my my publisher kind of went through because so initially the book was called Both and Neither. Mm. And because my publisher is Amazon Publishing, they were like, this is really bad for SEO. Like this is really bad search terms because both and neither are words that aren't so many things. And I was like, that's so interesting. I would never have thought hmm. of that. So he sort of, the, my, my publisher at the time, he sort of reread my proposal that I had put together. And as part of a sentence, it's I had written the greater freedom. And he emailed me and he said, I think this is what your book is about. I think it's about the greater freedom to be yourself. And I was like, yes, that is exactly what the book is about. So that's, that's where it came from. And, you know, I always say freedom, there's a quote that, that opens the book and it says freedom to be oneself is all very well, but the greater freedom is not to be oneself. And I think that's really, really what the book is about, essentially. Can you explain to me what that, how you interpret that quote? So I think that there's so many, you know, as we've been talking about so many societal expectations of how we should be, what we should look like, what we should want, how we should mm. behave, you know, our place in the world, every single thing about us. And that's really ingrained in us from a really young age. And, you know, we feel shame sometimes when we don't live up to those things. And it's just very embedded that that's how mm. it's supposed to be. So the, you know, the greater freedom is to not even need to be that that version it's to be able to make your own your own way of being mm, and your own yeah. way of living and it not even needing to be who, what anyone or what you think it can be like there's freedom to really just do whatever and I yeah. think that's something that we're not raised feeling at all yeah yeah uh, that's interesting I, I I understand it now it's it's the ability to entirely define what yourself is as an ever-changing value right yeah. it's not it's not this is who I am and that's it it's you can be whatever version of that on any given day yeah and the freedom to change your mind like you said and to grow yes. and evolve we're not we're not a fixed thing at all yeah that's the thing I I do love the freedom of changing my mind and I love mm. the the this idea of being able to you know, you you grow your opinions as you learn more and more. You change your opinions and so on. And that's always something I found a little bit difficult about social media. Yeah. And we've seen it so much in Hollywood with old tweets resurfacing of, I, I can't think of a celebrity right now, but you'll have a celebrity and they'll pull up a, qu a tweet that they put up in 2012 and they mm. will literally cancel the celebrity over that. And I feel like it this immortalization of your thoughts at a certain point in time doesn't give you that the space to grow and change and become a better person or evolve in any in a specific direction like you're always held to to these posts or tweets or whatever it is that you put out there yeah a hundred percent i was i was reading something the other day and it said you know, one of the biggest compliments that someone can give me is that I'm a hypocrite because it means that <laughs> I've changed my mind. And I'm like, oh, I really like that, actually. Yeah. 
I think it is it is really difficult and I definitely would not want to be you know 16 growing up now on Twitter I've I've changed my mind from from last month yeah in the book that you wrote you tackled your relationship with sex and sexuality as well mm-hmm. as a young Arab woman who's grown up in the UK so I guess first I'll ask you I'm, I'm sure that that had its own very specific challenges because yeah. you're straddling two cultures almost. And I think that's maybe something that a lot of Arabs who've lived abroad can can resonate with. So I'd, li- I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And then what I'd also love to ask you about is what was the conversation like with your parents? <laughs> what was That what? obviously had to be the question. No one does yeah. like how did you would you describe your family as conservative and how did you kind of go to them and say hey mom hey dad I'm writing this book this is what it's going to be about your daughter has sex your daughter enjoys sex and like what was it like so my family are really open-minded and quotation marks whatever that means but you know I never grew up particularly, you know, with religion being, a th- you know, particularly something that was pushed down our throats at all. You know, the al- fridge was always full of alcohol. Like it was, you know, they're mm. very, they're very liberal, Open. if, if we liberal, can yeah. use that word, yeah. right? So that was something for me that also pushed me to write the book because I thought, you know, who else is going to be able to talk about this stuff? And not and it not be this world war in their family home. Mm. Um, so I knew that I I knew that ultimately I had the support of my family and that they were not going to be so shocked by anything that I had to say. So that was number one. Um, but it definitely was still very uncomfortable, and it definitely was still, you know, when they read it, and I didn't let them read it until until it was actually in a book form and like printed. Because I didn't want, I didn't want to have their voice in my head any more than it already was. So they read it and my mom's so funny. She like skimmed read it first to like see, you know, what, what the hell have you written here? And then she read it again and she called me and it was so lovely because she, she had, you know, spent so many years saying to me, you know, don't, don't say these things. And don't say that you're a feminist. Like no one's ever going to want to marry you like this. And yeah. you know, she said all of this stuff. And then she read the book and she called me and she said, I think I'm a feminist too. <laughs> That's and amazing. I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow. And like I said, we've just had so many amazing conversations since then. So, and same with, you know, same with my dad. He's always been pr- pretty, ch- pretty chill. You know, when I was a teenager, definitely not, but as of my sort of more adult life, they knew I had boyfriends, they met them, they, you know, my one of my boyfriends came on holiday with me and my dad, and we stayed in the same room together. So I I had been given Mm. some of that space. And I think that was why I was so confused as to why I had this voice of shame, you know, as to all of these things, because I was like, but it's not even like my family are actually quite chill. So the fact that these messages have still embedded themselves so deeply into me is really interesting. And that was mm. what made me want to write the book. And and I initially, like I said, thought, and I, I you know, it still is a little, obviously it is, you know, I wasn't wrong. I, I definitely felt like this is because I'm stuck in between cultures. 
Mm. You know, my my Western or my friends in London are doing whatever they want. You know, they don't think about these things at all, which is actually not true. And like I said, there's definitely double standards everywhere when it comes to sex, which I have increasingly been seeing and realizing. But then I, at the time I thought, oh, they're just doing whatever the hell they want. And because I'm my Arab side has says that I'm a whore, basically, that's where that's where the, this pull of cultures is coming from. Mm. So there, there's definitely levels to it, but it, it has been it has been interesting. You know, I, I, I was born in Egypt, but I've lived in London more or less since I was eight years old. We moved back to Egypt for a year when I was 12. So I do very much till now feel quite caught in between cultures. And I think so I was speaking about this with my therapist yesterday, actually, even in terms of you know, choosing a life partner or, you know, who I want to date or who I would want to be with. That actually, for me, I think is where the biggest pull comes from, because I'm sort of like, depending on who I choose, I'm picking a side. Yeah. There's something that you that you touched on earlier that I want to go back to, and it's this idea of the, the voice. I think you spoke earlier about having this voice in your head constantly mm-hmm. telling you if you're doing something wrong or not. And I remember talking to to someone to a doctor in Lebanon who was telling me that what's amazing or what's so powerful about what has been done with this concept of shame, shame or hey, p- powerful, I mean, not in a positive way, is mm. that women have internalized the voice to the point where we police ourselves. 100%. We don't actually have someone at every turn saying, probably shouldn't do that, that's Ayyib, or don't do that. We say it to ourselves because we've internalized that so much. Yeah. And I guess my question to you is, how did you go about, if you remember, how did you go about being able to differentiate between your voice and that voice? Because sometimes it can feel like they're... They're both inside of you. And mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to tell which one is coming from, I guess you could say, one is coming from your mind, one is coming from your heart. I'm still I'm still definitely trying to figure that out. Um, my therapist actually gave me really good advice about that. And so I think that a lot of that voice is I should, right? Mm. So a lot of what that voice says is I should do this, I should be like that, I shouldn't do that. And what she suggested is basically writing down, you know, whenever that thought comes to mind, write down what it is and where you think that comes from. And Mm. in doing that, I've been realizing that most of the time that I should is not from me. It's not my, I should. Mm. And once you've kind of been able to identify that it's not coming from you, then you can look at it a bit closer and say, well, is that something that I believe? Is that something that I want to adopt? Is that a value by which I want to live my life? And if not, then knowing that it doesn't come from you, I think has makes it a little bit easier to put to the side. Being able to differentiate between these two voices is a really big part of starting to uncover who you are. Yeah. But in general, what has been that journey like for you? Like what is, as a third culture kid, as a, as you know, a, an Arab in the UK, a woman who's felt her sexuality controlled and repressed a lot of the times by the powers that be, 
What has the journey of discovering yourself been like for you? Oh, it's a really big question. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, whoa, where do I begin? It's been honestly really freeing. Like the, the more, the more that I'm able to align what I believe with what I do, the, the better I feel. Um, mm. And there's been a lot of things that I've been doing to try and really kind of get in touch with my authentic self. Um, and that's things like, you know, doing the morning pages. So every morning I fill three A4 sides of paper with like stream of consciousness thought immediately first thing in the morning and the things that are coming up on the pages I just can't even believe you know things that I didn't I didn't even realize Mm. but that we already know inside us but we just don't often give ourselves the space to access Mm -hmm. and this year actually has been has been really interesting for me because so I basically wrote this book, disappeared off the face of the planet to write it. Like I essentially locked myself down in my house for two years writing this book. It came out, you know, just was about to get back into the world and then lockdown happened, like actual Corona lockdown happened. Mm. And I live alone. So I've been alone for a year in my house. So it's been really, really interesting for me because I think that my journey started when I started writing my book. And now having had the space after the book came out to just sit with myself and I started going to therapy and, you know, I've launched this podcast and I I feel like I've really like through for me, I'm very lucky in that my journey is inherently tied to my work Mm. and my work aids my journey. I don't know where the hell I would be if I wasn't a writer, if I wasn't a storyteller. I don't know that, I, you know, it's always for me been a way to to get to know myself. I kind of feel like I'm just starting this path and sort of everything that I've done in my life so far has, sounds really intense and like quite grandiose, <laughs> but I feel like everything has led to, to this moment where yeah. now I sort of have the tools and the courage to be honest with myself and with other people. And the more I do that, the more I, I, I'm drawn to other people who are doing similar work mm. and who are also being honest. And it just feels really empowering. It feels really, I feel much more equipped to, to do it. What's the reaction been like? You know, you're talking about connecting to people who are on the same page and who are doing similar work. But have you encountered any backlash for any of the messaging that you're putting out there? You know, honestly, alhamdulillah, and I don't want to jinx it and I don't want to like, you know, <laughs> touch attract, wood. Yeah, I don't want to attract like any negativity. And, you know, obviously there have been things, you know, there was one, there was one that really stuck with me because I had been really conscious to, like to not do this. But there was one girl who basically said, oh, well, you're basically saying that the West is amazing and that the East's a shit. And I was like, babe, I never said that. Like, mm. you know, I never said that. I think so much of, of what I've been realizing and so much of what the book touches on is that this these are patriarchal messages and the patriarchy exists and is thriving around the world in all cultures, all countries. It's not a Middle Eastern thing. Of course, it plays out differently. Of course, there's different levels, but... This is a world problem. Hmm. 
Do you feel like there are still women who, and maybe you've encountered them, maybe you haven't, but there are still women who are oblivious to the ways that shame control their li- controls their lives or to the fact that we live in a patriarchal society, etc. Do you feel like there's women who still have their eyes closed to that? And I would also say, I feel like there are varying degrees to that because I'm probably aware of the impact of shame in certain aspects of my life, but not in others. Yeah, I think what's difficult is that the more you see, like you just can't unsee it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there's definitely people who say like, God, I wish I hadn't seen this because my yes. life is a bit more like... Ignorance, is, bl- Ignorance yeah. is bliss. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that one of the big problems, and I was like this for a very long time, I'm only quite recently awakened, let's put it that way. And it was through my book, I think, that I really started to wake the fuck up. But ingrained misogyny is a real thing. It's a real thing. And the messages that we absorb from, again, from our societies, from our family and from the media And this is, again, across cultures. There was some really interesting research that I came across when I was writing the book. And, you know, it was saying how even ads like commercials on TV, women are very often portrayed in a lot of negative ways. We're very rarely funny. We're very rarely shown to be who we how we actually are. And there was one thing that just really broke my heart, which is, you know, Anne Hathaway, the actress, Mm. she had made this film and she basically spoke out later and she said that she realized that she had ingrained misogyny because the director of the film was a woman and she said I realized that I trusted her less than if she had been a man Hmm. and I think it just really goes to show how deeply how just how deep the ingrained misogyny is and also, when we're living in a world where the patriarchy is in charge, and we've seen this, you know, we see this with, with race as well. A lot of the time, people try to sidle up to the side that has privilege. So, you know, you try get white adjacent privilege. You try get, you know, men adjacent privilege. So you think that if you kind of are chummy with them, they're going to hook you up and they're going to take care of you and you're going to mm. be special, but that you're not. You're not, mm. you know, so it's, 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 it's a waste of time and you're actually yeah. doing the world and your fellow women and stuff a disservice yeah. because you think that sucking up to the guy is going to help you. And it's actually not. I'd like to talk a little bit about men, mm-hmm. men and sh- and sh- so basically, yes, I think it, it is correct to say that, you know, this is. this shame and this control comes from the patriarchy. But the first thing I would say is that what you called ingrained misogyny as well is women are just as responsible at this point for upholding a lot of that, right? So we, because we've internalized these beliefs, we impose them on other women as well. Yeah. And on on our children, I think that happens very often. A lot of shame is like mother to daughter, I think. Yeah, it's it's so it's so deep that we we become we 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 are part of the system. We're part of the yes. system that upholds it, but we're also the ones that are gonna. Ha- we're also the ones that will have to break it down. But what I wanted to ask you was, do you? And I've never actually thought about this, but do you think that men, and maybe again, it shouldn't be two women answering this question, but. For the, for the sake of it, I'll ask it. Do you think that men also suffer from shame and aib 
I don't think I'm because I, well, I guess it depends. it's all semantics. I definitely think that toxic masculinity tells men that they can't be vulnerable, that they can't be emotional, that they need to be, you know, strong and you need to be a real man. And, you know, that's very, that's really toxic. Mm. And I think that's why feminism is so important because feminism is not only good for women, it's good for men too, because feminism basically says that we shouldn't have binary gender like norms. Everyone should be free to be themselves ultimately and equal and not need to ascribe to a certain way of being just because that is the gender to which they belong, you know? So I think it's very important because men should be able to be however they want. Women should be able to be however they want. And it shouldn't have to be a binary thing. So men should all be feminists too. And <laughs> like, let's debunk this stuff. It's it's yeah. it's so toxic for every single person on this planet. I mean, in general, it has been it has been proven that society societies that that have more equality and where women have equal opportunities are in general, you know, more thriving societies, yeah. economically more stable, socially more stable, politically more stable. Same goes with companies, etc. So, yes, it is beneficial to everyone. But in yeah. general, I do feel like it's a conversation that is sometimes nuanced and confusing for people. And and you can see that in the conversations that people are having around you. A hundred percent. I think, you know, I think it's, it can be quite scary to have these conversations, as you mm. said. And I think what we're seeing in the world today is that there's, and I find this quite exciting, but also, yes, quite scary, is that so many of the structures that we've kind of just always considered that that's just the way it is and this is how it's always been which is actually not even true and if we really knew our history we would know that that is not really true mm. but you know we think that this is like the, the sort of beams that are holding the house and the world up right so mm. if we remove this what's going to happen it's going to be anarchy oh my god what how what is the world even going to look like you know and there's this huge fear and i think it's a lack of imagination because why can't we imagine a better world? You know, why why do we think that, again, this is just because this is the way it's always been, that we have to just continue like this, even when it's toxic, even when there are nine-year-old girls being married off, even when, you know, female genital mutilation is still rife? Like, why can't we imagine a world where these things don't happen? Why is that so scary? Who Who's losing the power if, if we change these things? I think th that's the really important question. I love that. I think that's so powerful. That's true. It's questioning who is benefiting from these structures. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Alia, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you're not familiar with goodness, head to www.goodness.me to access the online platform and articles and follow us at goodness on Instagram. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and share it, and we'll see you next week. Because our team works remotely, we're often cafe hopping with our laptops and recording gear. We wanted to let you in on one of our favorite spots to do that, One Life Kitchen and Cafe in D3. Everything from the laid-back vibe to the top-notch coffee and fresh food makes it one of our favorite spots in Dubai to work, meet up with the team, or just be alone with a good book. One Life is part cafe, part restaurant, part coffee roasters, part co-working space. If you're in D3, go check it out.